If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, we're continuing our series through Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 12, verses 38 to uh, 50. Matthew 12, 38. Uh, As you're turning there, likely few of us, uh, if any, would disagree probably with the assertion that there are many people in our culture all around us who are very mixed up and confused about what the Christian faith means, what the true Christian church believes, and what we represent. But it's not just in our culture. It is entered into the Church of Christ, the evangelical church. There is confusion. Uh, David Wells, professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, reports the following findings. Hundreds of people in the U.S., they were asked to respond to the following statement. Quote, The Bible states that God only helps those who help themselves. End quote. Strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree. Fifty percent of those who claim to be evangelical said they strongly agree that this is a biblical statement. If you're wondering, this is not only not a biblical statement, but we see actually in biblical Christianity something quite contrary to this and quite opposite, uh, an emphasis on God's unmerited favor, uh, God's grace in reaching and delivering people who cannot help themselves, those who are depraved. The Bible describes as lost, dead in sin. Paul uh, put it so clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, though we were dead, Christ made us alive. A second statement was given to people and it read this, quote, the devil or Satan is not a living being, but is rather a symbol representing evil. 69% of Roman Catholics strongly agreed with that statement. Uh, Mainline Protestants, 65% agreed. And among those who called themselves evangelicals, 47%, almost half, agreed that Satan is not a real being. Now, you may find those statistics more or less uh, significant. But arguably, one of the greatest confusions and tragedies today centers on the very gospel itself. Confusion over the gospel message. It's the confusion, it's the false belief that the gospel merely represents a moral life, a set of behaviors, doing good, rather than a redemption and a salvation that has been accomplished for the people of God once and for all uh, through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And here in Matthew 12, we see this kind of confusion uh, unfold before us. Confusion over Christ and the gospel. But we also see where true life and redemption is found. So Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. Listen now to God's word. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. If the people responded to Jonah and to Solomon and to their words, how much more should people respond to Jesus Christ, who is much greater? Verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, is my brother and sister and mother. At the end of chapter 12, which we've just come to, into uh, chapter 13 really marks a turning point in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. The focus begins to shift from who Jesus is in the first half, in the first 12 chapters, to who his people are, beginning at verse, uh, in, in chapter 13, the church. In some ways, it's a shift from a Christ uh, focus to a church focus. And one of the reasons for this is the mounting tension and opposition that we have seen from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, those who feel threatened by Christ's message and his ministry, those who are opposed to the Lord Jesus. In other words, the line is becoming clearer and clearer between those who reject him and those who are with him. We're going to hear that promise in chapter 16, I will build my church, that word church, we start to see surface in Jesus's teaching. It's why Jesus in chapter 13, if you look over to chapter 13, begins teaching using this particular method of instruction called parables. I'm looking forward to the parables. This distinct way of teaching so that the same words and the same message that is preached will be understood and received by those who are of the faith, those who are gathered with Christ, those who are trusting in Christ. But those in unbelief, those who are opposed to Christ, those who are indifferent toward Him, they will hear the same words, they will hear the same message, but they won't get it. They won't embrace it. They won't understand it. This is exactly what we see with the Pharisees. They hear Christ's words, but they do not understand They see his works and his ministry, but they don't perceive. Why? Because their hearts are hard. They're in the presence of Christ. They're around the things of God, but they are looking for the wrong things. This happens all the time. We see this with the Pharisees in our own text in verse 38. If you look at verse 38, it says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Really demanding evidence of some sort. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They're seeking for something that Jesus really calls evil. 
They're asking for a sign. They're asking for some kind of evidence, some kind of validation that this person is of God. That they can speak for God. They're demanding a sign. Notice it's a sign, it's not a miracle. In the Pharisees' minds, there's a difference. A miracle could be performed by many people. In fact, we see the supernatural works uh, performed in both the Old and New Testament by people. Uh, the, the Pharaoh's magicians. We see it in the New Testament with magicians. The supernatural. A sign. Uh, a miracle was also something that was done on the earth. But a sign was something that appeared in the sky. That's what they're demanding. Something that would be the result of God's divine and direct authority. So they're demanding a particular kind of evidence. Something that's going to validate Uh, God's activity and presence. And this is still true very much today. Very present. Many people will reject the Christian faith or reject the Lord Jesus because in their mind, the sign, uh, the evidence doesn't fit. It's not there. I recall a number of years ago, coming back from a mission trip, it was a long flight coming back from South Africa, Midway through the flight, I got up, went to the back of the plane to stretch my legs, take a break. And there was one other person in the back of the plane who was also stretching, an older woman. She was taking a break. We began to converse, and she learned pretty quickly that I was a pastor and I was on a mission trip. And so she disclosed to me that she had Jewish background. And out of curiosity, I asked her, could I ask you a religious question? She said, sure. And so, well, for myself, as a Christian pastor, I believe Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He's the crucified and risen Lord. And I asked her, what evidence, what sign, if you will, what evidence would be necessary for a Jew to believe that the Messiah had indeed come? In other words, if what the New Testament reveals about Jesus of Nazareth is insufficient, what would it take? It's a question people have wondered in regards to Jewish believers. She said, well, actually, I'm not a practicing Jew. I don't know if that was her way out, but she said, but my husband is. He's at the front of the plane. He'd be glad to speak with you. And he's a professor of religious studies at Harvard. (laughs) True. I thought, "What? what have I gotten into? I eventually went to the front of the plane, uh, sat down with the professor, probably for an hour. We had a wonderful conversation, but I was curious as to what his answer would be. And so I asked the same question. What sign, what evidence would be required that would cause a Jew to conclude the Messiah had come? And he said this, peace, world peace. So Jews, many will reject the Christ that we trust in because there is not a kind of peace. It, the sign isn't there. And evidence, it doesn't fit for them. Many people are looking for a sign of some kind. Something that's going to show them where truth is. Where the Spirit is active and alive. Where real life is found. Our, our culture is perhaps more religious than is sometimes suggested. It's why many people are into things like horoscopes. Signs, palm reading is popular, believe it or not. These things touch on the sensational and the emotional. And we live in a culture that loves the sensational. 
the emotional, the impressive, the spectacular. Fireworks on the 4th of July move people. A great musical performance tugs on the heartstrings. But sadly, much of that kind of sensationalism and emotionalism has crept into the church today in major ways. We may not feel it as much here, but it is prevalent. It is prevalent in the church of today in our culture. Many churchgoers now participate in church life and worship for a moving musical experience. Alone. Or a kind of entertainment of some kind. Or a dynamic message from a dynamic speaker. Or a particular ministry that meets one's personal felt needs. Perhaps without seeing it, in many churches, ministry has become about customers to gain and a product to sell. The late Bishop William Temple said, The church that marries itself to the present age will find itself a widow in the next generation. Note how radically contrasted Jesus' words and message are to the Pharisees, what he says at the end of verse 29. He says, no sign will be given. They're demanding a sign. He says, there's no sign that will be given. If you're seeking a sign, if you're seeking validation, if you're looking for evidence of God's presence and power, none will be given except there is an exception. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's the sign. The central sign of God's power and work is a man in the heart of the earth. Is a man upon the cross. How counterintuitive, how opposite is our Natural thinking. The last place we would think of God's power and God's presence of spiritual life is a tomb, a cemetery, a headstone, death. Yet that's exactly what Jesus is pointing us to. The sign, it's the Son of Man in the heart of the earth, on the cross, in the tomb, risen from the dead. There's, there's the evidence. There's the sign. God's sign to us is the cross and the resurrection. This is at the heart of Paul's entire message and ministry. He wrote to the church in Corinth, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jews demand signs, he says. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Neither for Jesus nor for Paul was the gospel for a show. It was not for sale. It was not for appeal. And no matter how nicely wrapped the gospel might be presented, the content is that of a cross, which reveals two very important things. The depth of our sin which we must see again and again, and the greater depth of God's love for us, no matter how it's wrapped. Not only is the central sign of the Christian faith the cross and resurrection of Christ, but the central sign of Christian living for you and me is the cross. 
Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. True life for us, personally and corporately, is not will never be found in some particular ministry or some style of music or some dynamic speaker. speaker. It's found in the sign, the sign of the cross, and what that cross means to us. How important this is, not only for what God in Christ has accomplished for us, but what it means in my pattern of living, dying to myself. If I want life, I die to myself. And serve. They're demanding a sign. It's not only their desire for the sign or the sensational that they're uh, trying to find real life in. It's also in the pursuit of one other thing we see in this passage. And that is what I'll call moral conformity. Or outward moral behavior. We see this in verses 43 to 45. He says, if you look there, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. The association of an unclean spirit with a waterless place, a desert place, where there is not uh, usually the correlation to God's blessing in the desert. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which... I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. As some commentators suggest that you have the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. They've come. They've preached a message of repentance. People have seen the mighty works of Christ. And there's some kind of response or some kind of life response. But to what degree? Perhaps people are responding by trying to get their lives in order. These words, in these words, Jesus is telling us something profound about the human person, about human nature, human psychology, how we are built. That by nature, people are domains to be occupied. Houses. We are sanctuaries that will be indwelt by something. We were made to be dwelling places. Our existence and our life depends on being filled. Food is the perfect example, perfect reminder. None of us can physically live apart from food, apart from something outside of us. All you have to do is fast for one meal or two meals, and we're very quickly reminded how dependent we are on that which is outside of us. But notice the person Jesus describes here in these verses. They've emptied the house, they've swept it clean, and they've put it in order. Perhaps a picture of the person who has their life all together. So it appears. Things appear all put together. Outwardly, This person seems good. Perhaps this is an individual who is nice and cordial to those around them. They have no enemies. 
They never have an outburst of anger. They appear humble. They're hardworking, respectable. They've raised their children to treat others with respect and courtesy. In their outward morality, they even appear God-fearing. This is the picture of the house in order. But what's wrong with the house? It's empty. The house is empty. And it's not going to remain empty. No one remains empty in this way. It seems to me this is a picture of moralism. A deadly enemy of the gospel. It's turning the Christian faith into a mere set of moral behaviors as if Christ died for nothing more than to make us good, outwardly moral, and well-behaved. And yet we know, for those, those of us in Christ, we know we need much more than to be good. We need to be made new. We need a redemption forgiveness of our sins. We need to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father, saved from sin and hell and death. The house is not going to remain empty. That's why the evil spirit goes. It gathers seven more spirits and it fills that empty house. This is why John Calvin said the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. We cannot clean ourselves up or put ourselves all together, make ourselves holy. We need the work of another. The season is nearly past, um, but some of us are mowing our lawns for the last time, our last times. For those of us with lawns and yards, uh, most of us have faced the problem of the molehill. Some of us have a major dose of this, Some not as much. If you're like me, the simplest thing to do is just mow over it. You just go right through it. You mow over it, it flattens the dirt, and you can't see it. No one can see it, right? But we all know it does not solve the problem, does it? Because beneath the surface is a much deeper problem. There's a tunnel. There is a labyrinth of passageways much more complex And that is how it is with our lives. We need something much more than an outwardly moral life. And that's exactly what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Much more. And it's what we are offered here in this last section at verse 46. While he's still speaking, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. It's a reference to his earthly mother and siblings. And what does Jesus say? His response not only elevates the significance of of the church and the family of God, but in his response, he's giving us two things that we desperately need. He gives us himself, and he gives us one another. He gives us himself, and he gives us one another. He says, who is my mother and brother? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples. These are his followers. These are his people. Here are my mother, my brothers. And my sisters, whoever does the will of my father, this is my family. What a profound statement. True life comes through Christ who turns our hearts toward him, who who redeems us through his death and resurrection, who gives us himself and one another, calling us family. 
This morning, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple of Christ. And remember whose you are. You're a child of God. You belong to our Heavenly Father. One of His children. And remember who to love. Remember who to love. Stretching out His hand toward His disciples. This is my mother, my brother, my sister. These are my people. This is your family. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for uh, the power and the clarity of your word. We thank you that you have called us to yourself. That you have given your son, your only son, as an atoning sacrifice. A substitution for us. That in his shed blood, that in his sacrificial death, we have life. Lord, may we know that newness of life today. May we be refreshed by the truth of it. And Lord, we pray that you would even prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, something you have prescribed and set apart for our nourishment and to build us spiritually in your Son. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.